The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. If I should turn in your Bible to our text from Zechariah, doing a mini-series this Advent season from these select portions of Zechariah's prophecy that are very Christ-centered, Christ-filled with uh, much rich prophecy. You are very familiar with the fact that angels announce the birth of Christ to mere common shepherds. You may not have been as aware that in the ancient world, in certain cultures, shepherds were held with great contempt and suspicion. That was true among the Egyptians and other surrounding cultures. In our text, we see that the Lord rebukes the shepherds of Israel, figuratively speaking, of the leaders who are neglecting their duties. And it's the Lord who responds by stepping up to fill the role as chief shepherd of his people. In our passage, we find the prophet Zechariah receiving contempt by the leaders of Israel, rejecting his role as prophet and shepherd of the people. And Zechariah is a foreshadowing figure of Christ, Israel's true shepherd, who came to us on Christmas. Let us read Zechariah chapter 10, the first seven verses and then portions of chapter 11. Ask rain from the Lord. In the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds. And he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Now skip down to chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, but, but I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. 
and I took my staff favor and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. So it was annulled on that day. And the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Then I broke my second staff union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, once again we would ask that the words of my mouth that the meditations of each of our hearts may be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Recently I was watching the classic Christmas claymation story, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, with my children. And you remember the story how Rudolph and Hermie the Elf fellow misfits go on a journey, having been rejected by the community of North Pole and find themselves in danger of an abominable, abominable snow monster, rescued by Yukon Cornelius, the gold digger explorer, and land in the land of the misfit toys, a place where rejected oddball toys, misfit toys, end up that haven't been cared for by children. And these toys are shepherded by this winged lion, this compassionate lion who cares for them and wants them to be restored to children who will love them. Well, as the story, as the story goes, Rudolph and Hermie make it back to the North Pole, and eventually the leaders see the error of their ways, accept these misfits. And as it turns out, the rejected misfit himself, Rudolph, becomes the savior of Christmas under a threat of a great winter blizzard. This simple children's story illustrates that leaders are flawed, that leaders and communities are oftentimes prejudiced and lacking in empathy towards the misfits, towards the outcasts, towards those who just don't fit in. And the story is designed to evoke this empathy for these strange misfit toys. Like these toys, we all long. Long for a place where we will be loved, accepted, protected. God in his wisdom has delegated much power and authority to human leaders and rulers in societies and even in homes and in the church. Sadly, history is a history of failed leadership. Looking back over the ages at the abuses of people in power and authority of neglect of their flocks. And this is just as true in the church as it is in the secular world. A study of pre-Reformation leadership will find medieval popes, who were oftentimes little better than thieves, fornicators, murderers, looking more like the kings of Israel who butchered and slaughtered one another, competing for power and control. And oftentimes their priests, their under-shepherds of local parishes were hardly any better, very worldly and moral and unrestrained by biblical ethics. The Reformation came at a time of much necessity to restore and reform a biblical standard of shepherding 
of, of caring for the flock, of preaching God's word, of leading lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And what history illustrates for us is that people without shepherds wander in the great harm. I believe our text reminds us that each of us need a shepherd. That we, because of our sin nature, we cannot rule ourselves. It also reminds us that our human shepherds are weak, are frail, and they too often fail us. I believe it also demonstrates that you and I are ornery sheep who have a tendency to go astray, who don't follow our shepherd well. But the redemptive hope of our passage is that God is a shepherd for us. And he provides us under shepherds to care for us, and he will care for those who willingly call upon him, who trust and follow, who listen to his voice. I believe in chapter 10, verses 1 through 7, establishes that this vision of of God's people flourishing, prospering when they are led well, when their leaders, their shepherds, and, and also when the people respond with obedience. Verse 1 begins with this notion of, of dependence upon the Lord. Zechariah says, ask rain from the Lord. Does it not come from his hand to uh, replenish the crops, replenish the soil from which they grow? It is God who provides what we need physically and spiritually. Verse 2 has a command of rejecting false gods. Our human tendency is to wander and stray and to believe falsehoods and lies, to find false consolations, it says here in the middle of verse 2, to listen to the false dreams and the diviner's tales. Verse 2 also reminds us that people wander like sheep and become afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. Leaders are called to lead You know, leadership is always effective, either effective in the wrong way or effective in the right way. And leaders have to lead by example. The ones that who humbly trust in the Lord will lead well. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from above, and good biblical leaders provide security, resources, and enable their people to prosper. True leaders that fear the Lord, who pursue righteousness, protect the people from falsehood and lies, and do not allow deceit and unrighteousness to fester who are committed to stamping out wickedness. The two great leaders, the archetype shepherds in Israel's history are Moses and David. Both men, before their rise to prominence, served a term as shepherds, Moses in the wilderness of Sinai and David As a young boy, they led weak and frail sheep, animals that cannot live apart from a shepherd. You know, no high school or college or professional team uses a sheep for a mascot. You might have a ram who has horns, but not a sheep, a weak and defenseless creature without any defense mechanisms who is codependent upon a human being to care for it. Well, Moses and David were shepherds of Israel who confronted evil, who confronted wickedness, Pharaoh's cruel oppression of the Israelites, Saul's murderous rage. There were men who upheld truth and righteousness, who taught their people through the law, and the Psalms, how to worship and obey God. 
Moses and David led their people through dangerous times. Deliverance from bondage in Egypt through the wilderness wanderings. Deliverance from the oppression of the Philistines. Surrounded by enemy nations and establishing peace and security on every side in the promised land. Each of these men prepared their successors who successfully passed on leadership, who passed the baton on to Joshua and to Solomon, respectively, who would lead their people into enjoying even greater prosperity. And, of course, Moses and David were flawed, and the Bible is not shy, does not hide their flaws. And yet, in the end, they were men who feared the Lord, earning the epitaph, Moses, the most humble man to walk the earth, and David, a man after God's own heart. Well, notice in our text that the blessings that God desires for his people who are led well by effective shepherds, it says in the end of verse 3, he will make his people like the majestic steed in battle. Verse 5, like mighty men trampling their foes who shall fight because the Lord is with them, putting their enemies to shame. I believe that verses 6 and 7 offer this grand vision of unity and restoration in the post-exilic time of restoring Judah from the south and what's called Joseph for the tribes of Israel from the north. And the Lord says, It will be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God. Verse 7, speaking of Ephraim as the mighty warrior, whom God will make their hearts glad. The children will see it, that their hearts will rejoice. God delights for his people to be unified, to prosper, to impact the world for the sake of his honor and glory. Yes, leaders are called to shepherd their people, to teach them, protect them, to equip them to flourish and prosper, to uphold justice and put down wickedness, to care for the weak and the vulnerable. But it's not just for those who are called to formal offices of leadership who have a shepherding role. All of us have a role to play in shepherding those who are weak, young, vulnerable, the elderly, the disabled, strangers and aliens, even refugees in our midst, minorities, those who come and are even, we live in a society that has provided a a, a kind of shepherding role for the world, and that's in large part due to the Christian heritage of of this nation. So we have minorities and people groups from all around the world come here, fleeing oppression, fleeing uh, terror. And so, in a way, we have a, a a rich heritage to uphold, but even stronger than our Constitution is our biblical calling to be a refuge, a place of help, a place of prosperity, a place where people can come and find peace and prosperity. And so, what kind of people will we be as we are called a shepherd as we submit to the one true shepherd of God's people? Well, sadly, this grand vision, this calling of obedience is oftentimes forsaken by leaders who fail to shepherd, who abuse their power, who neglect their responsibilities. The history of world leaders is one of entitlement, of self-worship. Ancient pharaohs and Roman emperors presumed to be gods themselves, not unlike modern North Korea, led by Kim Jong-il and now his son, Kim Jong-un. 
In verse 3, the Lord expresses his great anger on such leaders, such shepherds of Israel in ancient times who were neglectful, who were oppressive, who presumed to be godlike. In a parallel passage in Ezekiel 34, you see a long, passionate diatribe of the Lord against the false shepherds of Israel who failed to feed the sheep, only feeding themselves and clothing themselves from the wares and the provisions of the sheep. If you take a journey down to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., you'll be told as you walk in that you'll you'll have about a 90-minute tour. Well, 90 minutes goes by fast as you feel like you're only scratching the surface of the rich resources that it has to teach you. As you learn about the conditions of Germany in post-World World War II, 1920s, and how the Germans became vulnerable, and vulnerable to the rise of, of Hitler's power, who through propaganda, through capitalizing on his opportunities, was able to seize control very, very quickly and turn Germany into a war machine to expand its territory and to oppress many, many peoples. Two of the images that stick out in my mind from a visit there was in one exhibit, a pile of shoes. Thousands and thousands of pairs of shoes taken from Jews and gypsies and other oppressed minorities taken to be given to the German people. And in another exhibit, tons and tons of hair shorn to stuff mattresses and pillows with. That is the abuse and the oppressive uh, oppression of a self-centered false shepherd who literally shears the sheep of people for human and for self-promotion uh, and provision. I believe that the story of Nazi Germany is a humble reminder of the idolatry we can fall into making too much of our human leaders. Verse 2 warns us against the household gods that utter mere nonsense, who tell lies and give false dreams and empty consolations, who overpromise and underdeliver. We need to beware. Beware of the messages and the promises of, of would-be rulers and authorities who promise to make America great again. We need to remember who our true shepherd is, who our true leader is. I received an email this past week from a fan member promoting some kind of political agenda, describing what they call a perfect day. The perfect day when all of our pol- supposed political leaders will be elected into office and reform health care and reform immigration and, re- and, and establish all the policies that, uh, that might fit our particular political persuasion. I would beg to differ that the true perfect day will be the day the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory and establishes his kingdom and righteousness and justice and mercy forever and ever with the true King of kings and Lord of lords ruling as the rightful shepherd that he is. Well, I believe that people are complicit. By putting their false hopes in human rulers, people in the church can follow the same worldly patterns as the rest of the world, like Israel who preferred a king to rule over them, who rejected God as their king, we need to be weary 
of human rulers who do not bow and submit to the lordship of Christ. And just as it's another message, another lesson from Israel's history, that no sooner do we exalt our leaders do we begin to grumble and complain, remembering how we had it better back in Egypt. Even today, as refugees flee from the cruel oppression of the nation of Syria, from the ruler Assad, who has a cruel determination to hold on to his power. I believe what we see right now in this world of affairs is that God gives people over to tyrannical leaders because people refuse to worship him. It's a reminder that human rulers cannot give us what we need. And just as God gave his people Israel over to the nations to punish them for idolatry, to prune them and and deliver them from that false worship, And so, too, the Lord rises up to deliver his own people. When the nations turned to destroy Israel, God came to their rescue as their true shepherd. And so we come to chapter 11 and verse 7 when God announces through his prophet Zechariah that he himself has become the shepherd of the flock. It says, So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. Those who had been appointed shepherds had failed, who were mere hired hands who only wanted to slaughter the sheep for their own selfish gain. The Lord has two staffs, one called favor and one called union, to bless his people and to unite them under his lordship. In a parallel passage once again from Ezekiel 34, the Lord declares, in response to the failed shepherds of Israel, the Lord says, I will rescue my sheep. I myself will search for my sheep that have been scattered. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost. I will bring them back. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. The fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So the Lord provides for his people. And it's the Lord who cannot rely, who refuses to rely on hired hands. The Lord Jesus has a similar message in John chapter 10. When he says that he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And then the Lord says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. The sign of the true shepherd is the one who serves, who lays down his life. And so Zechariah's prophecy climaxes in this passage in verses 12 and 13. When the Lord instructs Zechariah to ask these sheep traders, these false shepherds of Israel, for wages, asking them for payment for Zechariah's role as a prophet, shepherd of the people, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. Well, it would have been better for these leaders to keep those wages. But they give Zechariah a mere 30 pieces of silver, which was grossly underpaid and actually insulting, devaluing the shepherd prophet's ministry. The phrase in the next verse refers to it as a lordly price is sarcastic, rebuking these leaders for failing to appreciate their need 
for a shepherd. 30 pieces of silver was the compensation price for a slave, a slave purchased in the market or accidentally killed. You may recall that Joseph's brothers sold him for 20 pieces of silver, the best price they could get for their younger brother. The Lord commands Zechariah to throw this silver to the potter. And just as Israel's leaders had rejected Zechariah's prophecy, ultimately they were showing contempt for the Lord. Now this phrase, throw it to the potter, has various theories that explain what is, what is it that the Lord is commanding Zechariah to do. It could mean to cast or hurl a, a vile thing with contempt. And it's possible that the Lord is ordering Zechariah to throw the money into an unclean place. There's a connection here with Jeremiah 18 and 19 to the Valley of Hinnom, which was an unclean place in the location of the potter, according to Jeremiah's prophecy. But I believe it comes clear in verse 13 that Zechariah is throwing this money to the potter, a, an employee of the temple of the Lord. A potter would be the one who worked on repairs and who provided the instruments and the tools and the earthenwares for the priest and their priestly service. His work would have been very common of pots and uh, utensils breaking and me- needing to be repaired and replaced on a regular basis. Well, Matthew 27 records the account of Judas returning 30 pieces of silver that had been paid to him by the chief priest to betray Jesus. And when they will not receive his money back and will not embrace his remorse, Judas throws these 30 pieces of silver into the temple. The priests see this as unlawful, Treasury, that this is because this is blood money, it cannot be used for temple work. They use it to buy a nearby potter's field. A burial place for foreigners, an unclean place, later called the field of blood. In verse 9 in Matthew 27 quotes our text, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. But he credits Jeremiah, and that's been a peculiar uh, scribal issue for, for centuries. And I, I share the view that Matthew is referencing the major prophet Jeremiah, whose prophecy in chapter 18 and 19 is the backdrop to Zechariah's prophecy. And you see the clear connections when you read Jeremiah 19 and compare it to Matthew 27. That both passages are speaking, referring to a field for foreigners. They both indict Judah and Jerusalem for having shed innocent blood. In both places, you have the chief priests and the elders as prominently leading in injustice and unrighteousness. Both passages refer to a potter, and both passages refer to the potter's field. They have been named the Valley of Slaughter in Jeremiah's prophecy, and now in Matthew 27, the field of blood, a a burial place for foreigners. Matthew, the gospel writer, makes the connection that the same contempt that Zechariah the prophet receives, having been rejected by the leadership of Israel, who are ultimately rejecting the Lord as their shepherd, is the same contempt that the people in Jesus' day will show him, rejecting him as the shepherd, rejecting him as the true prophet, 
We don't need a shepherd, they cry. We don't want to hear from this prophet, they insist. As as Jesus declares and illustrates in the parable of the tenants, of those who seize the heir when he comes for the goods and kill him and throw him out of their vineyard. So it is that the Lord Jesus is the one rejected, the one shown contempt and scorn by the very people he came to save. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus would even quote Zechariah 13, 7, recorded in Mark chapter 14. The Lord says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus, in his passion, and his betrayer Judas, the treacherous priest, his cowardly disciples, are all reenacting the drama of Israel's history. A history of struggle. A struggle to follow God as their shepherd. A, a, a story of rejecting the true under-shepherds that God sends in his name to lead his people. A, a story of givenness to idolatry. A, a history of ornery behavior of rebelliously going astray. I would contend that Christmas is not a sentimental story, but rather a, a brutal reminder that we desperately need a shepherd. That we cannot rule ourselves. That our human rulers are weak who give false promises that they cannot deliver. And our only hope is to surrender ourselves and to embrace the Lord as our shepherd, to willingly place ourselves under his shepherding care and the under-shepherds whom he establishes for our good and his glory. Yes, we live in a day and age of vast refugee crises, of people wandering without a shepherd. I'm told that the refugee crisis in the Middle East and Europe now is as great, if not greater, than the refugee crisis from World War II. One of the themes at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. is the story of rejection of how European and American leaders refused to welcome Jews and others who were trying to flee tyranny, oppression, and the gas chambers. The question for us is, do we embrace the empathy of our God and Father, who sees us in our plight, in our crisis, in our wandering ways, who comes to our aid and to our rescue, that we have a shepherd who became a sheep, born a helpless lamb to endure a great evil, to suffer at the hands of wicked men, and to rise again triumphant over sin and death. You and I, like refugees in this fallen world, are a people without a place, a people without a true home who long for a place of acceptance, safety, Protection where we and our children may prosper. Friends, ours is the privilege to show the world. To show the world the glory and the greatness of the true shepherd of the sheep. I beckon us to submit to his shepherding. To follow those whom he places over us to help care for us. Who calls us to shepherd in his likeness. With empathy, with compassion, with boldness upholding truth and righteousness in the likeness of one who came 
who had compassion upon those who were helpless, who were like sheep without a shepherd. Praise God for providing us an eternal shepherd in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we are so grateful that you have not left us to wander and to stray, but you have come to seek and to save the lost and have provided for us the one true shepherd we need to protect us from the great dangers of sin and eternal death. Thank you for this time of year to remember the glory and the power of your incarnation, the wonder of your redeeming love to send your only Son into this world to seek and to save the lost, to redeem us and to take us home to be with you forever. May you be glorified this week as we depart, as we live for the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.